Today I am excited to be joined by Dr. Robert Simcoe, Professor of Physics at MIT and Director of the Kavli Institute for Astrophysics. In our conversation, Dr. Simcoe talked about his work studying the formation of the earliest stars and galaxies, as well as his interest in designing and constructing astronomical telescopes and instrumentation. First question, kind of typical, how did you become an astrophysicist? My interest started when I was quite young. I purchased a telescope when there was a sale at a local store and started using it in my backyard. And pretty soon, like most astronomers, I wanted to use bigger and bigger telescopes because you can see deeper and deeper into the universe and at better resolution. But the ability I had to buy bigger telescopes and the, you know, the money that I had available was less than the cost of these. Um, but I discovered that my father had a hobby from his youth in learning how to build telescopes, meaning there was a active community of hobbyists that would grind the lenses for telescopes and then use them to make what are called Newtonian mirror-based telescopes that can be done more cheaply than you can buy them commercially. And so this was a hobby that we enjoyed together, making telescopes in our basement, grinding the lenses, making the mounts. And then I was the one who was really using them in my backyard. And mm -hmm. after a while, we started going to a convention for amateur telescope makers that was held in Vermont called Stellafane, where we would camp out for the weekend once a year in August under dark skies, and then use our telescopes and share techniques that different people who were interested in the hobby had developed over the years. So that just became kind of a love of mine. And then when I went to college, I was interested in finding a place that had an astronomy department and decided to major in it. I was a little trepidatious because I knew that there was a lot of physics involved in that. And I did not come out of high school with a tremendous amount of preparation in physics other than a, just a love of astronomy. Mm -hmm. And I figured I would keep going in astrophysics until I couldn't do it anymore. And it turned out that I could keep going and ended up here today. I would say there's one other formative experience that I had, which is when I was in high school, where I went away to a camp that was held at the University of Arizona where they allowed high schoolers to use telescopes on one of their observatories during the summer months when professionals weren't using them for scientific observations. They would teach a cohort of maybe 15 or 20 students. We would go up and live on the mountaintop for a week, use the telescopes. And that was something that I will always remember is a formative time for me to consider doing it as a profession instead of just as a hobby. Yeah, definitely. So in astronomy, what would you say interests you the most or what really captivated your imagination made you want to pursue it further? And maybe how did that lead you to the kind of work that you're doing now as an astrophysicist? That's a good question. The Initially, when I was in high school and when I was pursuing astronomy as a hobby, I just loved looking through telescopes and taking pictures through them. And I just loved the beautiful images. And one thing I wasn't sure of is I knew that professionals didn't just take pictures for the purpose of making pretty things to hang on the wall, that we were studying them for science. And a lot of the time, telescopes were not even used to take pictures. They were used for, for spectroscopy to study the chemical elements in different parts of the universe or study uh, Doppler shifts and velocities of things moving around. And I wasn't sure that I would have the appetite for using telescopes in that way, but I soon discovered that I, I really loved it. And I would say it's the majority of what I do now is spectroscopy because I became quite interested not only in the building of telescopes and instrumentation. So I've always maintained that a love of the engineering side of it ever since I had this hobby of making telescopes with my father. But also uh, the idea that we could study the very early universe and make a scientific contribution to 
humans' understanding of our origin story, the very, very first chapter of how, how life came to be on the earth and how the earth came to be around the sun and the sun around the galaxy, and then going back to how galaxies were formed. The idea that you could study all of this using a telescope on the earth is something that I've found fascinating. And it has really guided my own research career. This idea of trying to go back as, as far in time as we can see the first objects. There are other kind of telescopes, microwave and radio telescopes that you can use to see the time before the first objects form. But I would say because I came to this interest from a love of using optical telescope to study stars and galaxies, I've always been interested in the very first of those that emerged when, the, when complexity first emerged in the universe. It's just a I find that a fascinating topic. And it's something that I'm allowed to or able to pursue alongside this interest that I've always had in just building big optical systems that I just find fun and challenging. These two kind of mesh together in a neat way. And one of the fun things I have now is that I continue to build big instruments like that, but I've even, I get to use the James Webb Space Telescope and other new observatories to push as far as back in time as we can. And that's, it's a real privilege to be able to do that. It's a joy to do that, but also teach students and postdocs and other researchers how to use these tools. I would say nowadays, I'm, I spend more time mentoring other people and how to work on these research topics and how to use these facilities than I do using them myself, but that's equally enjoyable. Yeah. Maybe going into you. So you mentioned spectroscopy and kind of looking back into the early universe. So from what I understand, spectroscopy can tell you how fast something is moving away from you and what kinds of elements the thing you're looking at is made up of. Is there anything else that this can help you tell? And surely once, once you have those two like, what are you able to do with those metrics once you've measured them? What more can that tell you about the early universe that we don't know or that we're trying to find out about? Yeah, I think that you're correct. And that those are the two major things that you learn from spectra. I would add a third. So it's the two of the three come from velocities. So there's the overall velocity with which all galaxies are moving away from the Milky Way. And that's caused by the general cosmic expansion after the Big Bang. And as you said, Measuring how fast something is receding from us is a first measurement of how far away it is from us because Edwin Hubble first discovered this relationship where things that are moving faster away from us are farther away. And that's a general property of an expanding universe. There's another thing that you can measure with velocities, which is top of the overall cosmological expansion thing. There are Doppler shifts that occur because of the internal motions of objects. And those are not from the overall cosmological expansion. It's just because things are orbiting about each other. And those orbits cause them to, to go around in spirals. And those spirals, if something is edge on from us, looks like a shift that makes the light bluer and then redder and then bluer and redder. And we use this technique to measure masses of many things. For example, for exoplanets, we can measure the mass of a planet around another star, not by seeing it directly, but by measuring the amount that it wobbles the star, right? Because both the star and the planet are orbiting about their common center of mass. It's just that the center of mass is very close to the center of the star. But if you have a high enough precision spectrometer, you can actually measure. Likewise, we can measure the speeds with which stars are rotating around their galaxies. And one of the big discoveries of the 20th century was that stars are rotating much faster than you would guess from the combined gravity of those stars. And that tells you that there's some mysterious form of matter that we can't see that's holding the galaxies together. So that there's a lot more information in these velocities than just the overall cosmological expansion. But my own research is probably focused more on the chemistry as you mentioned. An interest of mine is that we know that the Big Bang only produced hydrogen and helium, tiny bit of lithium and beryllium. 
But all the other elements of the periodic table were formed in stars, either through core nucleosynthesis or through neutron capture in very violent explosions or mergers of objects. Mm -hmm. And if you look far enough back in time, because the stars are generating these elements, there should be some time before which there were no heavier elements than hydrogen and helium because there were no stars yet. And so my research looks way back in time and tries to measure the abundance of these other elements on the periodic table as a proxy for when the first stars turned on. And so we can look at the relative abundances of these different chemicals, not only as a chronometer that tells us when and where stars were forming, but also the relative strengths of different chemical elements can tell us what kind of supernova were going off, how heavy were the stars that were being produced, how these things were mixed together. And you can actually, you can infer a lot of astrophysical information from just these basic measurements. But I would say the spectroscopy gives you those three things. It's the overall cosmic expansion of the universe. That's what we call the redshift, which we use routinely. This is most of what I'm doing with James Webb is measuring redshifts. But also you can measure the internal velocities of individual systems, as well as the abundances of these elements, which we use as a clock. I would say that, you know, the extreme velocities, I just want to go back to this other point. One of the fun projects that I've been doing in the last few years with a colleague here who just got his PhD and has come here as a postdoc is to look at the spectroscopy of pairs of star, either pairs of where there's a neutron star and a regular star that are orbiting each other. They're in such a tight binary that they orbit each other every seven minutes uh, or up to every 20 minutes. So it's like a year that's compressed into less than an hour. And these are very high energy systems and very unusual, but he's come up with a very clever way of sifting through large databases to find them. And it's just striking to see the Doppler shifts that happen as these two very heavy objects orbit each other very fast. You can actually see the shifting of the spectral lines back and forth and back and forth on every seven minutes. It's quite spectacular. <laughs> From that, we can measure the inclinations of their orbits. We can measure the masses of the objects and we can for all kinds of information about how they came to. So um, talking a little bit more about using spectroscopy. So you're looking at these really early stars, but from what I, from what I understand, when we get the redshift measurements, it's a linear trend for closer objects, but as soon as you go really far away, that trend gets a little like the, there are more sort of anomalies from what I've seen in, in, in the graphs, but so how accurate are you able to get those distances? And are there other measurements that you can corroborate your results with to see how accurate you are? The, we measure the redshift very accurately. So that's actually, that's the degree to which a line's wavelength uh, like the, for its color basically has been Doppler shifted. So we're looking at lines that if you were to see them here on the earth or actually the line that we mostly look at with the James Webb Space Telescope is the same line that causes the Aurora Borealis to glow. If you've looked at the Northern Lights and you that they have greenish hue to them, that's caused by oxygen in the earth's upper atmosphere that's being excited. And we can see that same color in these very distant galaxies, except that our eyes can no longer see it. It's been so far, it's moving away from us so quickly that that is Doppler shifted well into the infrared. So we're seeing it at about three and a half microns instead of half a micron wavelength. The, the When you're saying that there's a non-linear transformation, that really has to do with how we turn that measurement of a redshift, which is, which is just a straight up measurement into a look back time saying, okay, if I see this line that's redshifted by a certain amount, which I measure, how far into the past am I actually looking? And so if for very small shifts, that is a linear relation, but as you get to very large redshifts, it gets quite nonlinear. But we have very good understanding of the model 
that's used to map the wavelength shift onto look back time or to a distance they're equivalent because the time versus distance is only a factor of the speed of light that you use to convert those two and it really has to do with the a measurement of the trajectory that the photons take through the expanding universe, right? It's emitted at some time in the past, but that photon, it's like a runner trying to catch, it's like trying to run a race where the finish line is moving away from you. So the universe is expanding underneath the photon from a distant galaxy on its way, on its journey towards Earth. And the amount by which the universe is expanded is our measurement of, of how long that photon has been traveling. We think we know this very well because the speed at which the universe expands depends on how much matter is in the universe and also how much of this other quantity called dark energy is in the universe. Those govern the overall expansion. And we've measured those parameters using a couple of different techniques, which all corroborate with each other. And so we're reasonably confident the overall picture that we use to, to map wavelength shifts onto distances and distances onto time is a robust measurement. Of course, we've there's always room for better improvements to change that over time. But so far, all the evidence that we've collected, and I would say it's five or six different kinds of tests, they all seem to more or less agree with each other. So we think that this is a, a solid way to, to analyze it. Right, right. Um, and so maybe shifting a little bit more to the instrumentation side, which you mentioned was another real interest of yours. Could you talk a little bit more about building these telescopes as it, it started out as a hobby for you? But I understand now that you're doing it more professionally and building telescopes for research purposes. How does that happen and how do you test how good your telescope is? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, the question of how good your telescope is relates to a few different things. One is a function of how big it is. So bigger telescopes can collect more light. One way to think about how telescopes work is that there are photons raining down on us from sources across the cosmos. And we just have a large bucket and we're collecting those photons. And the more of the photons you collect, the more accurate your measurements will be. Because the more data you collect, it's always it makes for a better experiment. And when we build large telescopes, the primary reason to do that is the, it literally is a bucket, right? So it's, if you had, a, if you imagine collecting rainwater, the larger the area of your bucket, the more you get. And that's when we make big mirrors, that the same is true. The other metric of how good your telescope is something we call seeing. So the, the atmosphere, the earth's atmosphere is the last thing that these photons traverse on their journey. And it really messes things up because there's turbulence of the air in the atmosphere. And because air has a refractive index, it's only, if you've ever looked at pictures of trying to image something through the wake of a jet that's taking off or something like that, and you see the turbulence behind the jet makes the image fuzzy. Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing happens because there's always turbulence in the Earth's atmosphere from winds like the jet stream and other wind patterns. And as the air tumbles over itself, it makes the starlight twinkle. And twinkling is bad for professional astronomers because it takes a sharp image and blurs it. It's like taking your glasses off or something. Right. Um, and so there are different sites on the Earth, some of which have better, we call that seeing. So when there's good seeing, it means your telescope produces sharp images. And it's not just a function of the telescope. It's also a function of the site where you're located. Generally, we put our observatories on mountains to get them as, over as much air as we can. But then also we look for mountains that are on the western coasts of, of seafaring land masses. In that way, if there's a prevailing wind coming from the west towards the east and it comes off of an ocean, then it tends to be quite steady and you end up with good seeing locations. And that's why there's a lot of observatories in California. There's many in Chile, Hawaii, and then on the eastern coast of Africa as well. So those are some of the world's best sites on those sort of coastal mountain ranges. When it comes to the instrument, what you want to do is produce 
something that matches the performance of the telescope. And so you want to be on the biggest and telescope that produces the sharpest images. And then you build your instruments around that. And you also want to build a suite of instruments. Any, any one telescope can have between three to 10 instruments uh, that can go on different ports that you can address by changing the optical configuration. And you want each telescope to be outfitted with the ability to take pictures, to take spectra, and to cover different wavelengths and at different sharpnesses and resolutions. And that there's a way that you try to imagine all the different kinds of science that people would want to do with that telescope. And then you instrument it accordingly to make sure that the the science community can make all the measurements they want. An example of how I got into it, the, the most significant instrument I built was when I first started as a professor here. And we mentioned how, if you want to look into the really early universe, uh, things that you would normally see in, in optical wavelengths here on Earth, you can't see them unless you have an instrument that looks at infrared wavelengths because the wavelengths have all been shifted by the cosmic expansion. And so the telescope that MIT had was a part of did not have an instrument that could take infrared spectra. It was a very specialized sort of technique. And I really wanted to do that because I knew that there were these objects in the early universe that were invisible to us until we had the right instrument. And so I spent the first couple of years of my time as a professor building an infrared spectrometer that we could use to, to look at the early universe. And then what was exciting is as it was finished, that instrument went onto the sky. There were discoveries of a whole bunch of black holes in the very early universe which made for many targets that we could look at this new instrument. And these are some of the same things that we're observing with JWST now. The infrared was a new thing for me because infrared light is basically heat. And so if you want to have an infrared instrument, you have to cool it to extremely low temperatures because otherwise the heat from the instrument itself overwhelms the peak signal from the universe. And building uh, a contraption of steel and glass that you can then cool down to 100 Kelvin is very challenging because you can't align it at room temperature. It's out of focus at room temperature and you have to analyze because all the materials shrink as you cool it down that much. And it has to shrink in a way that doesn't crush the glass. And so that all the optics get into alignment when it's at operating temperature rather than at room temperature where everything's out of focus. So it's a, that was a new skill to learn, but it's it drew on this stuff that I loved doing from when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So is there like a universally used design for making telescopes? Do people use refractors, Newtonians, Cassegrains, or are they are there like different types of telescopes are suited for different tasks, maybe wavelength as a function of wavelength, for example? Yeah, I would say there are a few different designs. There's no single design that's universal. I, for the most part, people do not use refracting telescopes anymore. There are refracting lenses that sit inside of instruments, but the it's impossible to make lenses in the sizes that are needed to study these very early universes, objects. So we really use mirror-based telescopes now, the simplest of which is the Newtonian. Uh, but most people do not use Newtonian telescopes anymore. The, the last really big Newtonian telescope I'm aware of is the, the on Mount Wilson, California, that was built in the teens and 20s. And that was the telescope that Edwin Hubble used to discover the cosmological expansion. But that consists of one curved mirror and one flat mirror. Now, generally people have telescopes that use multiple curved mirrors because you can, it gives you more, more knobs to turn to optimize your telescope. And Cassegrains are common, but more common is a variation on the Cassegrain. It's like a Cassegrain that introduces a little extra complication into the second mirror mm -hmm. to produce better images. But there's other kinds of designs. There's two mirror telescopes called Gregorian. So the Cassegrain has a concave primary mirror and a convex secondary mirror. Mm -hmm. And a Gregorian has concave primary and secondary and has different properties. 
Uh, and now people are adding even more mirrors. If you want to have a giant field of view, for example, on your telescope, you have to have more surfaces. So there's a big telescope being built in Chile called the Vera Rubin Observatory, and it will perform a, a survey of the whole sky every four nights. And that has a gigantic field of view, so it can take in a lot of the sky at once. And you could not do that with a one or even a two mirror telescope. So they have three powered mirrors and that gives you enough variables that you can optimize over a very large field. So right. there's different telescopes for different types, but I would say for the most part, they're all reflecting now, but the details of the design are chosen for the instruments people want right. to pair to them. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I realize we're running over a little sure, bit. We can go a couple extra minutes. I started late. Yeah. Yeah. So. As my last question, I just wanted to know, as director of MIT's astrophysics department, could you maybe walk us through a day in the life? What kind, what, what do you do as a, as an astrophysicist throughout your day? Yeah, it's a good question. One of the things I've taken to saying recently is that if all my job was required was to do rocket science, it would actually be a lot easier because we do build spaceflight experiments and instruments for big ground-based observatories, and that's part of what we do. But I would say the biggest part of my job is trying to put the rest of the people in this organization in a position to succeed in their jobs. The I'm asked to make decisions and judgments based on my scientific experience day in and day out, but it's really the case that for a an organization this large to function. There are many people who have that experience within our organization, and they often need advice on how to deal, set up large collaborations, how to assign credit for those, how to make sure that the right people get the money that they need to hire their staff and build things up, and making sure that we align the way that the sort of modest funds we have available internally are directed to the things that all of our scientists think are the most interesting and impactful scientific areas that will emerge in the next five to 15 years. And so I think trying to project not just what's interesting scientifically today, but what will be in five, 10, 15, 20 years from now, that's a big part of what I work on and trying to make sure that we're seeding all of those things internally. The Here we follow three different prongs of experiments to study different aspects of the universe. So there's a, the portion that we talked about mostly today was ground-based telescopes, because that's the, we started from how I grew up in my own interests. But there's a lot of folks here who work on space-based observatories. And so we build satellites and work with NASA to, NASA launches them, but then we help operate them and produce science data products from those. And then we also have a gravitational wave community here that's building a new set of detectors called LIGO. And I understand right. you've talked to some folks from LIGO about how that works. It's a very unique and interesting experiment. And so we try to diversify the kind of science that, that we do here. And then also just create the kind of community that allows for scholarly inquiry, where people feel safe expressing their ideas and opinions and taking risks, intellectual risks to do great things, while also providing a support system so that that it's accepted that with that risk taking some comes some amazing opportunities and sometimes they don't work out and have a tolerance for that it is the kind of culture that we want here. So a lot of what I do is building the right kind of culture for, for really high level academic inquiry. And I feel like it's important that there's places in the world that, that are doing this. So, so that's my, I would say is the majority of my time. It's not an easy thing to describe exactly how we mix all the ingredients together to make that happen, but it's a combination of research talks, hiring, and then mentoring and cultivating young people who are going to be the next generation of, of scientists. Yeah, that sounds quite complex as a job, but yeah, it sounds really interesting. And yeah, so thank you again for speaking to me. Building telescopes is just 
really cool because you see all the images of these huge the complex instruments and that yeah here i am speaking to the person who helps make them yeah this is definitely very interesting to hear from you thank you yeah no you're welcome it's a pleasure talking i appreciate the time